Hey, if you uh, haven't been up to speed with us, we're in a series at the moment looking at the goodness of God. The goodness of God is our theme for the year. Uh, and we've started this series looking at the goodness of God through the Old Testament. Uh, we started by talking about how the goodness of God is inherent. Goodness is inherent in God's nature. It's a part of who he is. It's intrinsic in God that he is a good God. He is what he is perfectly and 100% and he's good. Um, and he doesn't want us to just know that, he wants us to experience that. He doesn't want us to just know that he is good and maybe even observe it from a distance like a, like a fireworks display at New Year's Eve. He wants you and I to know that goodness. Um, he, this is his offer and challenge to us in the Psalms, Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He invites you and I just, not just to know it intellectually, but to experience that. We also looked as we worked through this series about uh, how to trust in the goodness of God. Bryce talked us through that for a couple of weeks uh, through the life of David in the Old Testament, King David. What it looks like to trust in the goodness of God. Uh, and then last time we talked about this prior to Easter, Pastor Zane Howe, our, our kids and families pastor, uh, talked us through how sometimes people, people around you, people you know, people you don't know, actually don't have your best in mind. They want to hurt you or harm you. We looked at the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis, uh, which culminates in this picture in verse 20, uh, Genesis chapter 50, where, where Joseph is able to say to his brothers who meant harm for him, he's able to say, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. We're going to look this morning at a different aspect of the goodness of God. We're going to talk about what it looks like uh, to understand goodness, uh, the goodness of God and think about the question that has been on the hearts and minds of many people since we started this series. What does the goodness of God look like in the context of suffering? Battles that are happening that are not at your poor decision-making or your choice. Where is the goodness of God in that? Let's pray together. Father, we just ask as we would open your scripture, the Old Testament this morning, and stare face to face this uh, concept, this reality, that life does throw challenges at us. People do suffer. And we ask, where is the goodness of God in the midst of that? Just give us insight, hearts that are willing to receive, minds that are willing to understand as best we can as we look at this topic. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've focused this whole series at the start here in the Old Testament, which is intentional. As we move through, we will shift into the goodness of God in the New Testament, and that will turn more lights on for us, which we're excited about. Um, but I want to give you this verse from Paul's writing, New Testament, Romans 8. Uh, it ties in with what Rosary Muhammad was sharing around communion this morning. Verse 28. And we know in all things, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we know... 
And we know, right? But do we really know that all things work together for good? Uh, I was told my son, Tommy, that I was going to tell a story about him this morning. And he said, yeah, yeah, that's fine, Dad, no worries. And, and what's it about? About footy. And he goes, oh, is it about, is it that story uh, when I kick six goals, five behinds in under eights? I said, no, it's not, it's not that story. Um, but he did do that. And if you ask him, he will be happy to tell you. Uh, my son, Tommy, plays footy at the under 11, in the under 11s at the Sharks just down the road here at Southport. He's been playing since uh, the under eights in, and in one game, uh, he'll tell you about it, 11 scoring shots, six goals. There's a lot of rules to footy. There's a lot of things you've got to follow, a lot of positions, how to tackle, how long you have to mark for, uh, where to stand on the mark, goals, behinds, lots of rules, right? And for a young person uh, of eight, nine, ten years old, when you learn the rules uh, and you have a strong sense of justice and fairness within you, as my son has a double portion of that, um, there are challenges when you're on the footy field. Uh, you take a mark and it's not paid. You, you, you tackle a kid and it's holding the ball and the umpy doesn't pay it as holding the ball. And these things are very disturbing uh, as you're eight and nine years old. And so a part of Tommy's character, which he may or may not have learnt uh, from his direct uh, line in the family, uh, is that he will remonstrate. What, what do you mean that's not a mark? What do you mean that's not holding the ball? I don't understand, and he will as an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 11-year-old now, question the umpire. How did you come to that decision? That's incorrect. What are you doing? I don't understand. I don't know what's going on here. We said right at the start of this series that the way we uh, interpret and understand what is good in our lives, in our cultural setting, is that we assess things on whether they are good or beneficial for me, is this good for me, and is it good for me now? Is it good for me and is it good for me now? That's how we assess the goodness or the rightness, the fairness, justice, etc., in the environment around us. And back when we talked about that originally, I encourage you to shift your thinking about what is good, particularly in regard to God, away from me and now to these two words here, present and committed. Not so much is it good for me and good for me right now, but is God present in this situation and is God still committed to me or to us, whatever the situation is. To allow those two to be a better test of goodness. Is God present? Is he committed? Take these words from Isaiah 55. For my thoughts, this is God speaking, are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's a hard-fought lesson, that one, isn't it, for you and I? That God knows more than what you know. He can see more than what you can see. It's difficult when we think to ourselves, I could probably match it with God intellectually on this issue. Tell me, God, what it is. What's going on, I don't understand. 
I don't know what you're doing here, explain it to me, is our posture before God. Perhaps there's no greater assessment or test or evidence, if you like, of our knowing, knowing that all things work together for good, than when it seems in our own situation that all of our things are coming apart. That's when we will work out whether we know it or not. I don't need to tell you stories of great tragedy, of grief and loss and murder and death and injustice, victims of crime, drunk drivers. You could read the paper any day of the week. <laughs> who, who reads the paper? You could watch the, te- the TV, the news. You could scroll through your news feed and you will find stories immediately of injustice and hurt and suffering every single time you open it or switch it on. And the concept that we read in Romans about us knowing that all things work together, that gets tested, it gets pushed and stretched. There are people who have walked out of these doors of this church and probably every church because something has happened in their life and they've said, actually, I don't know that all things work together for good. I don't know that God is good and I don't think I'll come back. I cannot reconcile the situation I find myself in with what my view of God is or what I've been taught. There are a great many books on this topic of suffering. Here's a few. Uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller. Where is God When It Hurts? The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis. Getting Through the Tough Stuff. There are hundreds of books on this topic. And we're going to look at this topic ever so briefly this morning about suffering through the lens of the goodness of God in the story of Job this morning. Now, some of you may not be familiar with the book of Job. It's in the middle of your Bible. If you've got a Bible, turn to the middle, you'll find the Psalms, then turn left, head back, uh, you'll find Job, 42 chapters of Job. Really quickly, uh, I'm going to have to whistle through this, uh, this aspect. Job is probably one of the, if not the oldest book that was written in Scripture. The first five books of the Bible are known as the Pentateuch. They were written by Moses. And the first five chapters of Genesis were written in a particular way. Um, There's there's, uh, language that is used that lines up with what we see in the book of Job here and suggests to us that the book of Job is one of the very early books written, if not the first. One of the things that uh, points us in that direction is that Job has a very connected relationship with God, but he doesn't mention anywhere about some key aspects in those first five books. Nothing about uh, the commandments, uh, nothing about covenants, nothing about Moses, which tells us that maybe um, it was written prior to those um, books being written. There's some interesting information up on the screen. The style of Job, I'm not going to talk you through all of this, Um, The style of the way Job has been written is that chapters 1 and 2, the first two books of the Bible, uh, the first two books chapters, oh my goodness, all the words are getting stuck and jumbled up and falling over each other. The first two chapters of the book of Job uh, start the story, the narrative, and then it ends with the, the last sort of 15 verses of chapter 42. That's the story part of Job. 
In between, chapter 3 to the first seven verses of 42, are the poetic telling of the story and the thinking that's unfolded. Job's friends come and give him interaction after the story unfolds. Uh, He responds to those friends. He prays. He interacts with God. That's those chapters in the middle. But the story part is the part at the front and the part at the end, which is what we're going to deal with this morning. So if you don't know Job's story, Job chapter 1, I'm just going to touch on a couple of high points here and understand what's happening in his world. Chapter 1, verse 1, Job uh, is a godly man. Verse 1 says he's blameless and upright uh, and he feared God and shunned evil. The next few verses tell us about all the things and the success that Job had, His, uh, his business, his animals, his livestock, the things that he did, his family, the way he loved God, etc. Verse 5, the second half of verse 5, tells us about uh, Job's family. He's got 10 kids and they would often have parties uh, in one of the kids' homes and celebrate together. But because of who Job was, he was concerned about his family. He would, uh, I'll read it to you, verse uh, 5, early in the morning after one of these parties, uh, Job would sacrifice burnt offerings on behalf of each of them, his kids, thinking, perhaps one of my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. He's successful, more successful than anyone around. He's a godly man, he loves his family, uh, and he does this as a part of his regular custom. We also see in this early part of Job that there's a conversation that's happening in the heavenlies, in the zone that we can't see, very reminiscent of uh, chapter 1 and 2 of the book of Genesis. But God and the enemy, Satan, are having a conversation. Uh, They're conversing. And here's what God says in verse 8. Have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. That phrase, that phraseology is repeated in the second chapter of the book of Job as well. The enemy, the accuser of the brethren, Satan, is on the scene at this point and he responds to that statement from God, I'll paraphrase it, of course Job loves you, of course he worships you, you've looked after him, you put a hedge around him. You made life easy for him. Take all that stuff away, says Satan, and we'll see what he's made of. Very, again, very reminiscent of the interaction with the serpent, Adam and Eve, early chapters of the book of Genesis. At this point in the story, everything turns to yogurt for Job. None of it is due to his own poor decisions, none of the the negative attitude, no secret vices, no disobedience. And the big danger here as we read this, or even for Job as he lives this, if he's not careful, is that the inner Tommy comes out in him. I don't understand. What are you doing? Why is this happening? I don't get it and wave his fist towards the heavens. Here's a quick rundown. Verse 14, some of Job's livestock, two of his herds are are, are attacked by foreigners. 
all of his uh, servants are killed and those animals are taken away. Only one servant survives, comes and tells him about that situation. And even before he's finished, another servant comes in, tells another story of another flock of, uh, or herd of animals that have been killed, uh, servants killed, taken away. Happens to him three times as these people just keep coming in and telling him about absolutely catastrophic disaster in his livelihood and his business. Verse 18, then reports come back that a storm, a great wind has swept through the eldest son's house where they've had one of these famous parties and the house falls down, all ten of his children have been killed. All of these back-to-back brutal catastrophes take place in the life of Job. Job's response is to move to extreme grief and sadness. But even from this posture, he worships God. Verse 22 says, In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. For Job, here there is a depth of faith and trust in God that sets him apart from other people around him. He's faithful to God. He doesn't blame God. He remains rock solid in his faith. Chapter 2 starts in, such, in, in, in much the same way as chapter 1 finished. This interaction in the heavenlies. Have you considered my servant Job? Says God to Satan. Yeah, yeah, but you have looked up. Well, if you were to take things away from him personally, affect him, that would change everything. Paraphrase. So then Job is... Uh, afflicted with this awful, dreadful condition, skin condition, uh, that means he can't work, uh, he can't uh, rest, his health, he's got the sores, the boils, uh, the pus, the blood, it's the whole package, right? He can't sleep, he's irritated, he can't restore what he had, he can't grieve properly. At this point of the story, we've heard nothing from Job's wife. Seen, not heard, nothing. But then in verse 9, she enters the scene. She says this, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Speaking to Job. Curse God and die, she says to him. He replied... (laughs) You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? I would not be wise in using those words in my own home, but Job has done it here. He's made the statement. You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God? And not trouble. In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. All that he's done and worked for and slaved away for for his whole life to bless his family and bring his kids up. He was a blessed man. Everyone who interacted with Job at a business level was blessed as a result of buying or selling from him. Such was the favour on this man. Ten kids whom he loved, whom he would just 
go out of his way to make sure that they are right with God as best he can. And then everything comes apart and his wife turns on him here at the same time. But he did not sin. Now let's just pull over for a minute, take a deep breath, pause for a minute and understand this story. Why is this story even in the Bible? Why are we given this insight? I would venture to say that no one on this planet has faced the extreme flood of challenge that Job does here. All the things that he's worked for, as I said. Job's faith and belief in God is strong, no doubt, stronger than any others, but can he withstand this kind of onslaught? You and I, right, you and I have faced some stuff over the years, haven't we? Catastrophic financial losses, death of loved ones, parents, friends, children, diagnosis, serious illness, mental health, chronic pain. You and I have suffered, and you don't even know whether I'm talking about me or you yet. We have suffered, have we not? Pain and suffering, disappointment and injustice, it's the human condition. What's going on, God? I don't understand. Explain it to me. Is the cry of our heart in our humanness. What is God seeking to tell you? You have suffered in some kind of way, maybe not to the extent that Job has, but suffered all the same. What can we learn from this story? Is goodness able to be found? Chuck Swindle, in his biography, this book here, he writes a series of biographies. They all look like this. This is the one that he wrote on the life of Job. He's got a bunch of lessons at the end of this book. We're going to touch on a few of those uh, in Job's story today. But we're only just kind of peeking through the fence, peeking over the fence line of Job's life to see what we can understand. But before we get to those lessons, I want to just address these two verses again, verses 9 and 10. Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die is what Job's wife has suggested to him. There are a couple of ways to interpret this verse and the fallout of this verse. Uh, One, uh, you may have heard even from this pulpit many years ago before my time, that Job's response here... And as we see uh, Job sort of restored in chapter 42, right at the end of our story, which we'll get to a little bit later, uh, there is some suggestion that Job took a new wife um, and started again. His kids have died, his livestock, his business, etc. And the inference is that he started again with his wife and he took a new wife. I would suggest that that's not accurate for two reasons. When Job responds to his wife here in, these, in this verse, verse 10, he doesn't say you are a foolish woman. Okay, It's important to understand that. He says you are talking like a foolish woman. The words that are coming out of your mouth now are not really who you are. You're talking like a foolish woman. And when he says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble, he frames that in the plural not in the singular. He doesn't say, shall I accept good from God and not trouble? He says, shall we? 
That's my first point. Second point is, when we see this process unfold in chapter 42 of restoration, God instructs Job to pray for his friends but he do, and, and to restore relationship, but he doesn't instruct Job to do that with his wife. There's no evidence that suggests that their relationship is broken here. Uh, and there's no record through the book that tells us that uh, maybe Job's wife passed away uh, or that he divorced her or any of that sort of thing. So my suggestion is that they were together and they powered on. I bring this up to help us, you and I, look with empathy when we see people who are suffering. Um, part of that is brought out through this book that Bryce lent me, The Remarkable Record of Job by Henry Morris. Uh, an outstanding read, giving you insight into uh, just analysing this, uh, partly as a commentary, partly as uh, a kind of a, a reflection um, that engages the, the heart. And the reason I want to draw those points out about this, because uh, this verse in particular, is that it's possible, in fact, I think likely, that Job's wife makes that statement in verse 9 from the posture of a grieving mother who has lost 10 of her children, all of her children, rather than this mindset that says, I don't believe God is real, it's a it's voice coming out of the hurt and pain and suffering of grief. It's helpful for us to think about what someone's going through, uh, particularly when we read scripture, and not just see it as something that we can learn from in our Bible study. If you've lost a child, if you've lost more than one child, if you've lost ten children at once, then you'll know what grief is like and you will lean towards being good to Job's wife here. So here's four lessons that I want us to touch on uh, as we think about this picture for Job. We get to chapter 42. God has finished a speech from verse, uh, chapter 38 to chapter 41. I would encourage you to read that and uh, investigate that. God is setting some things straight here for Job. Job has suffered immense catastrophe. He's been given feedback from his friends, three friends, that turns into four friends, and it's all bad advice. It helps him not one little bit. And God steps in after Job gives him a bit of a, uh, a mouthful and God corrects him. God has just finished his speech to Job. He asks Job to forgive his friends, pray for them, and then God will restore Job's wealth, give him more than he had before. He and his wife will have another ten children. And Job, in this part of the passage, will acknowledge his unworthiness before God, live long and see out his days content and full of the love of God. I want to give you two lessons that I'm going to share again tonight, but then two lessons, two more lessons, two bonus lessons, extra lessons at no extra charge, just for our morning congregation. That's good, Steve. 
I'm happy to hang around till 11 o'clock for that, I hear you saying. Chapter 42, verse 3. God's plans are beyond our understanding and too deep to explain. This, I believe, and a number of commentators believe that this is the core message of this book of the Bible, the story of Job. Job asks a whole range of questions to God through this middle poetic battle that he's having with his friends as he gives his account back to them about what he thinks is happening and he raises questions with God. God takes three chapters to respond to him and answers none of his questions. Zero. A grand total of naught. Not one does he answer. This is how Job responds to that in verse 3. You asked, who is the great... uh, Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Here's how that reads in the message version. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head. That's Job's response to God's correction of him. The phrase from Job here that he uses in this verse would take a high level of humility to deliver. Remember Job was an upright, godly man who was blessed beyond measure and then his life turns upside down and is broken at every level. And he says what we would probably say ourselves. Explain this to me, God. I don't understand. Why is this happening? But here he's come to a point where he says, with a high level of um, humility, these things that God has allowed to happen are way over my head. Way over my head. Uh, Philip Yancey in his book says... um, This is what he thinks would have been helpful for Job if he was running the show, Philip Yancey. He would say, Job, I'm truly sorry about what's happened. You've endured many unfair trials on my behalf, as if he was God speaking, and I'm proud of you. You don't know what this means to me and even the universe. A few compliments, says Yancey, a brief explanation that would have given Job some solace. But God doesn't do any of that for Job. He doesn't address any of his questions directly on the previous 35 chapters. Chapters. Frederick Buckner in his book, Wishful Thinking, sums up God's response like this. God doesn't explain, he explodes. He asks Job, who does he think he is anyway? He says, trying to explain the kinds of things Job wants explained will be like trying to explain Einstein to a little neck crab or clam. I say crab. That would be much harder. God doesn't reveal his grand design. He reveals himself. We think we need to know. We need to understand. Sometimes it's difficult to explain something to somebody who doesn't have the ability to understand. It could sound like a cop-out when we're about to explain something to someone and they say, oh, look, you wouldn't understand. 
You, what, do people, what do you do when people say that to you? Give me a try. Eh? I reckon I'll be able to figure out whatever it is. That's how mortal to mortal engage themselves, right? But we're dealing with God here. And it's unhelpful for us to think that we can match it with intellect with the Creator. Job doesn't want to reduce God to someone or something that he can control. He understands that God's plans are beyond our understanding and too deep to explain. Here's a second lesson. No one can compare to God when it comes to blessing. Let me just whip through these verses really quickly. Verses 9 to 13 tell us about how God has restored Job and his wealth, his businesses, put him back on his feet and blessed him beyond where he was prior. He and his wife have had 10 more children. And verse 15 tells us that Job's daughters were more beautiful than anyone else in the land, granted his inheritance to, his, to their brothers. God has put things right in that context. In the Old Testament here, we're seeing what it looks like for grace to play out. God is giving back, right? Giving back in a gracious way. Many people walk away from God and Christianity and faith because they feel like they're hard hard done by. God is not good. He doesn't care. He's silent. Job experienced all that. Remember he said, um, I I wish I died when I was a baby. I wish I died when I was in the womb. Cursed the day that I was born. But ultimately God is the one that restores and blesses Job. The Lord accepted Job back. He restored him. He gave increase to Job and he blessed him as his life went on. Two, two more lessons really quickly. We're out of time. Here's the one, that's, uh, one that is for the morning congregation, verses 16 and 17. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so Job died an old man full of years. All that Job went through, all that he had to endure... He comes to a place where he's properly surrendered to God. He doesn't live his days out under the circumstances that he had to endure throughout his life. The lesson is only God can fill our final years with divine music that free us to live above our circumstances. Yes, Job was blessed again in the things that he put his hand to. That doesn't always happen for people, of course not. But Job didn't see out his time living under the weight of the challenges that he'd faced. He didn't live out his days punishing people for the things that he had to endure. He lived a life in the end that was full of worship and love towards God even though he suffered more than any of us are likely to suffer. He was able to live above 
that circumstance. That's how I want to see out my days. I'm 48. It's not far off now, I'm sure. <laughs> it's no, no it's, it's a long time off. That's my, that's my hope and prayer. But I want to live out those final days when I'm not doing all that I do now, loving Jesus, not punishing people for the things that I had to battle earlier on. And then the last lesson, when the day of reckoning arrives, God is always fair. Verses 7 and 8. After the Lord uh, had said these things to Job, uh, he said to Elipaz the uh, Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my jo- uh, servant Job has. So now take seven bulls, seven rams, go to my servant Job, sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Job is, instruct, uh, sorry, Job is, is, is instructed here to pray for his friends. God's unhappy with their dishonesty. But God will honour Job's prayer. All of us have this inkling within us that when the opportunity to square things up uh, presents itself, we should take that. Even if it's in, just in a small way. But Job is challenged here to pray good things for his friends who have let him down. What God is saying to Job here is that on the day of reckoning, God is always fair. I want you to be gracious towards these men. We're in the Old Testament here, I know, but I want us to look at a verse in Hebrews 6 that will help us understand this in the broader context of Scripture. Hebrews 6 verse 10 says this, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. That's the challenge set before Job here. Don't extract some punishment over these guys, pray for them. And God will bless you for that. Here's the opening phrase in that Hebrews verse from the message version. It says in uh, the NIV, God is not unjust. It says in the message, God doesn't miss a thing. When you get to the end of of your life or near the end of your life and you think it's time for me to square things up, getting your house in order is about squaring things up. It's about being gracious to other people. That's what it's about. God doesn't miss a thing. When you think about the challenges of suffering, things that have come your way that are not at your hand, the unjust nature, the unfairness of that, and the deep hurt that that presents, they are opportunities, even without understanding, to trust in God. God doesn't miss a thing. Maybe there are some of us here, I'm going to ask Danny and the team to come back up. Maybe there are some of us here that have things in our story, our journey, that we need to hand over to God. 
our posture of why is this happening? I don't understand means that we have created a little box of hurts and we're going to hang on to it. God knows what's in there. He doesn't miss a thing. Some things in your journey will have felt like they are too painful to endure. And maybe that's tainted your view of God. There are questions that you can't solve. You're in the room now in church, but your heart has a compartment that has just dark hurt and pain stuck in it. You're sitting here, but your clench is your fist is clenched tightly with that unresolved hurt right stuck right in your palm. Job would want you to know that you can release that anger and resentment to God. He doesn't miss a thing. God's presence and his commitment, the measures that we want to assess the goodness of God by, have not moved a millimetre. He is present and he is totally committed to you. He's ready for you to open your hand and release that battle to him. I'm going to pray and I want to give you just a moment or two to assess that within yourself. What do I need to let go of here, God? Let's pray together. Father, we just come before you now. The story of Job is, it's hard to read. We don't understand it. We can analyse it for its grammar and the meaning of words, but we don't understand it. We confess we don't understand it because we're not able to. We don't see what you see. But we do see in the story of Job that you enabled him, even in the midst of the things that he suffered with, to live out his days long and loving you. And so, Lord, if we have that posture of our, our fist clenched, holding on to hurts in our history, I just ask that you would help us to release that into your hands. It's a, trem- a tremendously humbling thing to do. But, Lord, empower us to do that so that we can live out our days loving you and pointing people towards you in Jesus' name.